All right. I'm David Colosi here for Clock Tower Radio, uh, clocktower.org. And today I'm speaking with Amy Shoulder. Uh, and Amy's been working in publishing for three decades. <laughs> 300 years. 300 years. That's what we're going for. Uh, and she was the editor at City Lights in San Francisco. Um, I think that's sort of where you got your start, maybe. Yeah. But yes. you know. And then uh, she co-founded uh, the High Risk series uh, through Serpent's Tale um, with Ira Silverberg. They've published um, amazing writers like Kathy, Kathy Acker, Lynn Tillman, David Trinidad, Benjamin Weissman, Dennis Cooper. Sapphire, Sapphire. June Jordan, Kate Bornstein. Yes, the list goes on. <laughs> Yeah, uh, and then she, she's also been the U.S. publisher for Verso Books and the editor-in-chief for Seven Stories Press and also editor-in-chief for iBeam Atelier. Uh, and recently she was the editorial director at the Feminist Press at City University of New York from 2008 to 2014. Um, and now she's currently producing a film, which I'm sure we'll hear about. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, and she, you know, over these years, she's sort of championed and amplified the voices of many writers who have been too subversive for other publishers to even listen to sometimes. Um, so, uh, and also often coming in at a pivotal point when they sort of needed their voice heard the most, when they were being challenged the most sometimes. Um, uh, and so blending this sort of natural and organic political activism with the world of publishing, uh, you know, by amplifying these other voices. Today, I wanted to invite her here to amplify her voice and kind of hear her story and uh, see where she's been, where she's going, and all of that. So, welcome. <laughs> Thank you, David. Yeah. It's so nice to be here. Yeah. Um, so, I'm sure in that intro, there are many things that I've missed. You've probably been, you've freelance edited tons of things along the way. Um, so, yeah. I'll just leave it at that. We'll hit them as we go. But I wanted to open with Icon, um, which is a book you published at the, with the Feminist Press. And I wanted to open with that because, you know, you can tell us a little bit about the premise of it, but I really liked your introduction to it. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, there's sort of, we can stretch with, with this book, with your introduction, you talk a little bit about your childhood, and then the last page of the book, you know, it says... Amy Shoulder was the editorial director at the Feminist Press, so that past tense is sort of, <laughs> you know, somewhere else we could go. Um, so, yeah, if you could just start saying what that book was about, what was the inspiration for it, and, yeah. Well, Icon is, a, is an anthology that I put together. I invited um, a group of writers whose work I love and whose ideas I'm interested in, and um, asked them a question that I think about um, for myself and and really for everyone, I, I think it, it elicits some interesting stories. And the question was this, um, um, I asked people to give a private view of a public person with the idea that as we come of age and and well beyond into our adult years, there's usually someone um, whose work, someone in the, the public sphere whose work really moves us and fascinates us, um, perhaps repels us, but nonetheless really captures our imagination. And um, everybody has someone, you know, yeah. at least one. But, yeah, yeah. you know, there's usually one or two that everyone, you know, will, you know, they're really frank about it yeah. with me. They'll say, well, this person. Right. You give them a choice to write about one, and it's like, mm -hmm. oh, yeah, this one. <laughs> and it's usually a little bit of a whisper because there's something <laughs> intimate, there's something that's a little secret about yeah. it, and it's because there's some kind of projection going on and there's some kind of fascination that really has to do with, with you. Mm -hmm. So... Um, I thought it would be interesting to ask writers to, to write an essay that's the kind of writing that I really love to read, which is personal, um, it's about real things in the world, but coming from a very personal place. Mm -hmm. And I encouraged each of these writers to not give a research <clears throat> essay on someone they know and like, but really to get to that that 
that place that's somewhere between biography and autobiography, that very particular point where you are conscious of the fact that you're talking about someone else, but really you're talking also about your, you know, mm-hmm. about yourself and how you see them. Yeah. And the results were surprising and wonderful to me um, in the variety and in some very unexpected yeah. choices. Um, <clears throat> so, for instance, um, Mary Gateskill uh, wrote about Linda Lovelace, mm-hmm. and um, uh, uh, Johanna Fateman wrote about Andrea Dworkin, mm-hmm. the 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 dreaded, hated, right. radical feminist <laughs> from the the eighties. Yeah. Um, uh, Justin Vivian Bond wrote about an Estee Lauder model that that she remembers looking at um, in the seventies when she was growing up uh-huh. and looking for some kind of model. Um, of of what she wanted to be. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, Kate Sambrino writes about Kathy Acker, uh-huh. who was someone close to my heart as a writer and also as a friend. Yeah. So um, I was pleased that it was, um, it's, it's kind of a small, intimate collection yeah. and uh, knows very much um, what it is and what it isn't. So... Yeah. Um, uh, and it gave me an opportunity in the introduction to write about growing up in in the suburbs of Los Angeles and having my own relationship to certain public figures, to radical women I saw mm-hmm. first on television and in the news, like the Manson Girls, yeah. and what the um, what it meant, I think, to grow up with the certain kind of radical outsider. Um, in the peripheral field of my vision, not mm-hmm. not having a lot of information and being too young to really absorb what it meant yeah. to idealize such people. Yeah. Um, the kind of bliss of being uninformed. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when you were talking about being surprised by people's choices, when I read your introduction, I was like, wow, I would have never thought of that. But it's it's just really interesting how you were like eight years old or something. And- <clears throat> It just fascinated you. Yeah. Huh. Um, um, And what... uh, I mean, with the Manson women, what was... I mean, that sort of tension where you were... It was sort of like you were interested, but you were... I mean, you didn't idolize them, but you were kind of in between, like, this is really interesting, but... (laughs) It's you know, I think and for young and I think for a lot of us who grew up in the 60s and 70s, um, you know, there's there is this huge fascination um, with, uh, particularly at that time, that that there were these women who were um, uh, in the news for acting out mm-hmm. and this kind of explosive behavior, rather than what we come to know is you know, typical female rage, which is usually to implode. Right. Huh. Um, so that was that was fascinating to me. And then also I was growing up in the suburbs yeah. and um, just the idea that, that there was this, like, sex, drugs, rock and roll right. world <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> practically in my backyard in Topanga Canyon yeah. um, that didn't look anything like my world and growing up you know, feeling queer and outside yeah. of any kind of, you know, um, model for living that I could find, I, you know, I was grasping at straws, uh-huh. um, and it was exciting. Yeah, 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 huh. Um, and was there any, I mean, just in relation to Charles Manson, in relation to how he was... Um, either controlling these women or not controlling these women or, you know, what was there? Um, or did that somehow interest you at all? Or Well, that's the sad part of the story, of course. Oh, that's is what that, you were yes, that's, about. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's like the, you know, the part that <laughs> one wants to repress in, right. that, in thinking and reconstructing that history that, right. that at the center was this, you know, psychopath who, you know, ruined lives and... Yeah. and um, and led them down this treacherous path. Yeah, yeah. There's no, yeah, I don't idealize that at all. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and that, I mean, that sort of theme of these 
women who are in these pretty complicated predicaments um, mm. seems to, I mean, that's what most of your work <laughs> kind of leans toward. And you did another mm -hmm. book called uh, Critical Condition. Um, what was the, what was the women on the edge of violence? Um, uh, so, yeah, it's like yeah, this. that was a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going I'm, back, I'm going back in time yeah. and um, enjoyed thinking about that. Yeah. Actually, I was yeah. living in San Francisco. I um, became a young editor. I became an editor when I was just getting out of college, getting my bachelor's degree at UC Berkeley, mm -hmm. and I started working at the City Lights Bookstore mm -hmm. in San Francisco. I I um, talked my way into an internship, which uh -huh. was not something that existed as a program yeah, there, right. but I wanted it and somehow got it. Um, yeah. So I worked with the um, uh, publisher who was then Nancy J. Peters. She was in a business partnership with Lawrence Ferlinghetti, and uh -huh. Nancy um, agreed to take me on, and she showed me everything she knew, which was invaluable for my start as an editor. Mm. Um, and I worked in the bookshop um, yeah. at the same time, which I have to say was also invaluable as a publisher to have had that experience yeah. of being on the retail side. That's kind of, um, I, it's something I, I think everyone, anyone in publishing should, should yeah, do. Yeah. Um, so I did that. So um, I, <clears throat> I began to acquire books um, in 86, 87, 88, mm -hmm. um, uh, at a time, um, you know, like kind of just really a horrible time yeah. in many ways in terms of it being the Reagan era. Yeah, Jesse Helms. Jesse Helms. And, um, and, and for me and, and my community in San Francisco, it was a time when we started to really be under siege and, um, um, because of HIV AIDS. Mm -hmm. And misunderstandings about, there's so many misunderstandings about it at the time. Um, yeah. And different politicians exploited those misunderstandings mm -hmm. to, yeah. Mm -hmm. So one of the, um, ways one of my my starts in in acquiring books was to publish a anthology within a city lights review an annual um, journal that we um, put out I did a compendium within that on um, kind of a cultural response to AIDS in 1987 mm -hmm. where I think I was one of the first to question how the AIDS epidemic and how the kind of fears around transmission and this new identification of risk mm -hmm. that we were all at, how that was going to impact our cultural lives as artists and writers and readers. And, um, and so I, I reached out to... Um, Everyone I thought might have an interesting answer to that mm -hmm. response to that little hap, you know, little paragraph of a um, query, um, just my wish list, yeah. and um, not really knowing anybody mm -hmm. um, in the world of artists and writers, and um, uh, to my delight, uh, almost everybody wrote back. Yeah. So it um, it made for a very interesting collection um, of kind of like where we were culturally around AIDS and censorship and self-censorship. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it included um, artists like David Wanarovich and uh, Leon Golub and Nancy Spiro mm -hmm. and Dara Birnbaum and and writers and performers like Karen Finley and Kathy Acker, Eileen mm -hmm. um, Miles and Sarah Shulman, um, uh, James Broughton and Ellen Ginsberg. Yeah. You know, it yeah, was yeah. just, uh, <laughs> even Abby Hoffman. I mean, oh, there really? was just wow. like this moment <laughs> where I think we all kind of knew yeah. that it was, um, it was hard and it was going to, it was going to be catastrophic. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, so I was um, then able to build on those relationships 
um, one of the um, outcomes not long after was to put together Critical Condition, which came out of a conference on women and violence in mm -hmm. San Francisco. And again, that was um, uh, what would become kind of a specialty of mine, which was to look at um, social justice issues and um, kind of the and um, political issues around kind of politics of um, of making art and, and literature. Mm -hmm. So that conference included Sapphire and Dorothy Allison and a number of women who uh, explored issues of violence, domestic violence, gender violence in their literary work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think I remember hearing, I think Wild Thing is maybe what was published in that. And I think I remember hearing her read that at... Um, Sapphire. Yeah, at yes. the Drawing Center here in New York in like 94, 95 when I first mm -hmm. came here and it was just like, whoa, who was that? Like she was who a very powerful Indeed. reader. Man. She's one of, the, I think, one of the most important writers yeah. of her time. Yeah, yeah. And just to, to hear her read, it's just like <laughs> sort of blown back in your chair. Like, wow, this is... Um, and of course, she wrote Push. And were you involved with Push? Or? No, I um, met Sapphire around that time that we were working on Critical condition and um, American dreams. And too. then when yeah. I um, was putting together the um, high risk anthology, yeah. um, which Ira Silverberg and I put together and was published by Penguin in um, early '90s, mm. and um, and that kind of built on this this project that I just spoke of for the City Lights Review, mm. which was to then go to writers and say, okay, so there is this atmosphere of self-censorship going on. Um, what would you like to publish? Mm -hmm. um, or what would you like to have the room and the encouragement to write um, if you were really to put aside all of this, this um, pressure mm -hmm. now to um, only create a certain kind of literature that is somehow safe and somehow puts our kind of um, sexuality and outlaw sexuality um, off the mm -hmm. um, off the 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 meter you know which I think was was part of the backlash of the AIDS epidemic was mm -hmm. to really push out of the mainstream um, what had become you know it was maybe becoming more acceptable which was to explore different um, sexual identities and gender identities in writing. Mm -hmm. And then with the AIDS epidemic, it became, um, uh, you know, I think the push for for safe sex became kind of like confused and blurred around ideas of cultural production. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and it seems like the High Risk series was like an extension of all that. It was this... Um, I mean, it's it's interesting that you talk about it in terms of self-censorship because there was definitely censorship from politicians, um, you know, coming in on, was it Karen Finn, the, the, what is it, the Fab Four? The you know, NEA yeah, case. Yeah, NEA Four, yeah. Yes. Holly Hughes and um, Tim right. Miller. And John, John Fleck. Fleck yeah. yeah. And not to mention Maplethorpe and Andre Serrano. Um, so there's this outside censorship, but then, yeah, the repercussion of that is this sort of self-censorship of, well, you know, if we want to be published, if we want to do this, if we want to do that, you know. Right. So w high risk was sort of, how did you and Ira come up with that? Was that kind of that same kind of response? Or? So we published an anthology called High Risk, right. and it, um, so it included writers, some of whom we've talked about, uh -huh. like, um, or have come up already. It included... Uh, Mary Gateskill and Kathy Acker and William Burroughs and Karen Finley and David Wanarovich. Um, I believe Sapphire was in the first volume, um, Essex Hempel, um, and it was a mix of of um, fiction and poetry and mm -hmm. I even had a little artwork in it. Yeah. Uh, it was very, very successful. It clearly hit a chord with a, mm -hmm. a, a, among um, many people. 
um, at that time, so it really worked. We were invited by Penguin to do a volume two, which we did a few years later, and the uh, uh, UK rights were sold to a little publishing company called Serpent's Tale mm-hmm. that was based in England, and they published an English edition um, that was also very successful. At that time, the publisher, Pete Ayrton, uh, he was pleased with that the success. He was very interested in having more of a North American presence and generating um, books by North American writers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he used that success of the anthology to then um, have us launch um, a high-risk imprint mm-hmm. and open office an office in New York. And um, we then went on to publish single author volumes um, of fiction, some poetry, mm-hmm. um, uh, mostly novels and stories, mm-hmm. and then some essay collections. Yeah. And we published maybe 40, 50 books at that, you know, within a few years. Yeah. Yeah. And the, I mean, that series just seems, I, it just seems very iconic to me. Like everything about the, the packaging, the covers was, you know, consistent, beautiful covers. Rex Ray designed yeah. all of our, yeah, our yeah. packaging. Yeah, yeah, beautiful. He's, I think he did a lot of the books even after High Risk with you, right? He was Seems a good like friend of yeah. mine, and we came up at City Lights. We both were oh, working yeah. in the shop, and he was finishing up at the Art Institute and doing Mac-based design uh-huh. um, at, the to- at a time when there were no programs for it. Yeah. And I was starting to acquire books and really didn't want my books at City Lights to look like the the way those books were looking at that right. time. <laughs> so, yeah. if you know what I mean. Yeah. And um, and enlisted Rex um, to to design books for me at City Lights, and that was that was the beginning of a very long collaboration. Um, we he did all of my City Lights books for twelve years, and yeah. and then high risk books, and um, and and then meanwhile became in his own right a very successful graphic designer for um, the uh, music industry, and ended up working with Bowie and mm-hmm. um, Joe Satriani and, yeah. and uh, Delight and so forth. So mm. um, he passed away recently. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean those, yeah, those book covers were amazing and mm-hmm. all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I remember, you know, when I was at CalArts at that time, you know, I was in the library. I was supposed to be, you know, reading Derrida and you know Baudrillard and all that, and I found myself listening to Giorno Poetry Systems and just all those recordings uh-huh. of John Giorno just, you know, you got to be the shine, yeah, uh-huh. Suicide Sutra, all that stuff was amazing. And of course, he had a you know, so he recorded so many other people, you know, Burroughs, obviously, um, but yeah, so many other people on those recordings. Um, so, yeah, for me, as a writer at that time, I was sort of looking for people who were doing different things. You know, I when I studied writing, it was Raymond Carver, it was mm-hmm. Bobby Ann Mason, it was mm-hmm. Flannery O'Connor, and um, you know, and I was like, eh, yeah, they're great writers, you know. Um, yeah. But then I found Robert Coover and Donald Barthelme and things like that. And then Ishmael Reed and Kathy Ecker and, and it's like, this is different. <laughs> and then, you know, you find the high risk stuff and I was like, this is really different. <laughs> um, so yeah, I just, you know, kind of remember that sort of those books as this sort of, these sort of, well, those, you know, between Raymond Carver and say someone like Dennis Cooper, these are two parentheses, mm-hmm. you know, on different mm-hmm. ends of the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so, and I guess with that, there was something I wanted to read from Icon, just a, a short thing, in the Hannah, Hannah Blank's essay on uh, MFK Fisher. Um, she, uh, she says, uh, no, Fisher was not like me. None of the writers I love are. They see and notice and understand only what they see and write and understand with their own bodies, their own eyes and mouths and hearts, not what I would. Uh, That is the reason writing matters, the reason reading matters. And then she goes on, If we are lucky as writers, our crooked, ink-stained fingers do come to to caress other faces, and we never know it. Those faces are not ours. They are nothing like ours. That is the point. 
and then at the end of it, I made a little <clears throat> little margin note when I, uh, that I wrote out. When I started this essay, I knew little about MFK Fisher, and I knew nothing about Hannah Blank. But when I finished, I felt I, world, I knew the world better. So in a way, uh, that's kind of how I felt with the high-risk books, too. It was like, you know, these people's experiences are really different from mine, but, <laughs> you know, just listening to those stories is great. Um, Thank you for reading that. Yeah. That's really beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I thought that kind of summed up the way that a lot of those writers, too, were writing about you know, their, their icons. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. interesting. Undated. I can't be calm, simple for more than a moment when I'm with you. Because of want, because your eyes are holes. In want. So I'll take a minute and just remind people we're on Clock Tower Radio, clocktower.org. I'm talking to Amy Shoulder. If I were to have written a full essay for Icon, my mm -hmm. own anthology, I, yeah. I, um, I might have written about Valerie Solanas. Mm -hmm. Um, she's someone who's fascinated me for a long time and is one of these characters um, who's both um, thrilling and fascinating and repellent and um, reprehensible. Mm -hmm. She she wrote the Scum Manifesto, which is fun and mm -hmm. <laughs> um, a kind of um, uh, 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 primer on... Um, female rage. Mm -hmm. um, she did shoot Andy Warhol, um, mm -hmm. and and so you know it's hard to hold her up um, for that and many reasons as you know as as really um, uh, uh, um, an icon mm -hmm. um, that we can be proud of. <laughs> mm -hmm. But um, but I think that um, she like many of the the women I've been drawn to their stories, their life stories, their work mm -hmm. um, in my career in publishing, um, I think it's because, the, you know, it's complicated. Yeah. And it's really <coughs> not, um, uh, it's not a, a, it's not a linear story in terms of, you know, someone who's come of age in a particular way that's yielded a, um, a good outcome for mm -hmm. herself or community or society. In mm -hmm. fact, it's someone who really, whose life um, exploded and imploded all over the place. Mm -hmm. But she did create um, a manifesto at a time when um, radical voices were coming from many different communities, and here was a very radical um individual mm -hmm. voicing female rage um extremely prescient about certain things mm -hmm. like reproduction without men right. and, um <laughs> yeah. atms um <laughs> things like that um but it was messy yeah and i think the fact that she could become such a well-known figure and write something that was widely read and be such a mess really mm -hmm. i think is fascinating um, there are, are problems, enormous problems with what she has said, what she's written, um, and maybe even more so how that work has been used. Mm -hmm. um, I started working at the Feminist Press as the editorial director in 2008. Mm -hmm. I was given an opportunity to um, rebrand and um, try and create um, using this incredible legacy of a publisher that had been around since 1970, mm -hmm. um, but had really not um, been kind of brought up to date with like a, you know, new generation mm -hmm. or several new generations of feminists and mm -hmm. what, what they want to read and what their issues are, the cultural politics, sexual politics, but also literary interests. Mm -hmm. So I was invited and it was really, it was, it was irresistible to me because, um, it, it seemed like a next great step, mm -hmm. um, in my, in my work, which I've always, um, called feminist. 
and then was able to build with an in really incredible um, small staff and um, um, and uh, to to really kind of think about what did it mean to be a feminist press today, which mm-hmm. was not like to publish books by women for women, which was super important in 1970, but now like the, certainly our mission needed to change. Mm-hmm. And to include, you know, and that feminism really wasn't gender-based and that it was really about um, kind of an activist spirit of mm-hmm. choice and um, uh, freedom and um, and really and, and equality. Um, and I was able at that time for six years to publish books from around the world, mm-hmm. um, literature from around the world. Um, I started right away with a book by Virginie Despont, who is a household name and mm-hmm. in France yeah. is really is an amazing radical feminist who is, is known for her movie Baise Moi, mm-hmm. which was like a really powerful rape revenge film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and that's where her career started, and she wrote King Kong Theory and... I published that in 2010 and mm-hmm. went on to publish um, uh, Paul Preciado's Testo Junkie, mm-hmm. which has become a kind of um, a classic in uh, looking at um, kind of like gender as a technology. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of a continuation in a way of Foucault's um, history of sexuality, mm-hmm. looking at kind of how the... Um, uh, synthesis of hormones really has has changed the way we look at what is what we think is essentially feminine or mm. masculine. Yeah. So a book like that um, in a feminist context, I thought was exciting mm-hmm. for us to publish, um, and uh, um, and was able to bring together a staff of really brilliant feminists to kind of get together and and think about what all the possibilities mm-hmm. of being a radical publisher of literary and political books mm-hmm. what we could do mm-hmm. so you were actually invited there you didn't sort of hear the job posting and apply for it they they found you based on your previous experience right books the and- uh, the executive <clears throat> director at that time Gloria Jacobs Mm-hmm. And I met at a book fair. Yeah. She was manning a little table right. in midtown Manhattan, you know, as right. one does when you're an important publishing professional. Right. You spend your weekends, like, hawking right. your books at a table two at a, one, yeah, a little one. book fair. And, and then, yeah, on my off time, I was the editor-in-chief of Seven Stories at uh-huh. that time, which is a great independent publisher in New York. and. Mm-hmm walked by and thought, oh, I wonder what happened to Feminist Press. I mean, yeah. I'd been aware of, you know, their publishing track record with Zora Neale Hurston and, uh-huh. you know, the Yellow Wallpaper and, you yeah. know, classics I'd read in school. And I was like, I wonder what they're doing. And I met Gloria and she, and I, we just hit it off. Mm-hmm. And I had no idea that she was looking to um, hire an editorial director to be a partner with her mm-hmm. to reconceive excuse me, what this press could be. So mm-hmm. um, so we talked, mm-hmm. and um, we dated before we got married. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but she did um, propose yeah, um, early nice. on that we worked together yeah. and we explored those possibilities and what that meant. And our styles were very different. Our literary tastes were very different. And, uh-huh. and we both knew that could either be wonderful and complementary, you know, or disastrous. Uh-huh. Yeah. And... <laughs> Thank God it was the the former, yeah. and and we had a good run for six years, mm-hmm. and um, very proud of the books that we did by Anna Castillo and Sarah Schulman and mm-hmm. um, Justin Vivian Bond, mm-hmm. um, and the Pussy Riot, and we did the for we did a yeah. book that was based on the Pussy Riot. Um, Trial and yeah. included the punk prayer and a lot of artists and writers' responses to that moment, yeah. and um, and did a really uh, exciting um, big illustrated book of called the Riot Girl Collection mm-hmm. around that time as well, which documented the Riot Girl um, output. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it seems like a perfect fit. <laughs> You know, that job, it seems like it was 
you know, something you were excited to do to, you know, update the, the list and, you know, um, so yeah, I mean, I guess the question is, you know, I mean, I know there was a management change at the feminist press. Yeah, it was, I mean, it's simple, you know, yeah. I, um, I had a great run. I, um, the, the person who hired me retired mm. and the organization hired someone else. And of course, you know, with that, um, there was a different direction proposed and, mm. um, you know, my investment in working, you know, that hard and that closely yeah. and being in an office, you know, 50 hours a week and so forth was really, um, to be a literary publisher mm. and to create a, feminist ecosystem there mm -hmm. in the office. I, I have, um, it was a great opportunity for me to really put those politics into practice in terms of um, how we would make these books and how mm -hmm. we would decide what books. That process was really interesting to me and became, I think, especially important, um, publishing as many books as we did, mm -hmm. you know, 15, 20 books a year. Um, I was very interested in cultivating new readers, mm -hmm. and I um, know that it, um, in order to do that, I needed to enlist the help of the people around me, especially mm -hmm. the young people around me, and have a diverse group of people around me mm -hmm. um, for us to generate ideas together and for us to process um, manuscripts and conversations yeah. and media so that we could really come to those decisions together. Um, and, uh, and I think, you know, with, you know, someone new coming in and, um, it was just kind of the end of an era mm -hmm. and the things that were important to me, um, were really no longer valued. Mm -hmm. So I used it as an opportunity to, um, jump off and pursue mm -hmm. other things. Yeah. And is it, would you say that that was like earlier, you mentioned the difference between sort of radical feminism and I don't know what, I don't know if it's mainstream feminism. I don't know if there's such a thing. Um, but would you, would you characterize it as sort of, it was less interested in that radical side or I don't know. I just, it's yeah, itself. I yeah. don't think I can, you yeah, know, yeah. kind of characterize something else. I just yeah. know that I didn't feel right. um, inspired or that the things I really care about were going to be cultivated. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And yeah. that's important. Life is short. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. The thing, one thing with the Pussy Riot uh, book and the whole um, thing was, I didn't really realize that it was it was kind of a prayer to the Virgin Mary to become a feminist. It was kind of it's kind of interesting. You don't hear that in the papers, you know, when they report about it. Um, right. I mean, yeah. that's you know, when you work, uh, you know, when you work on international, you know, on issues, you know, internationally, you realize that we're just such at different different points, mm -hmm. you know, around the world. So you know, a feminist, radical feminist gesture. Uh, in Russia is very different than one yeah. here. So, you know, for us, it would be like, well, what? You know, what the fuck do I want to, like, <laughs> convert? Who cares about the Virgin Mary, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, that's not where we're at, right. you know, really so much here in, in the U.S., I think. But in Russia, with that yeah. society, um, that was truly a radical gesture, and, and we saw the terrible consequences of it. Yeah. And I think in the, in the book, in the court transcripts and then their letters, they were, you know, defending themselves as Christians and, you know, in the same way that maybe Andre Serrano did in the nineties, the you know, after Piss Christ, he was like, well, you know, I'm a Christian. I'm just being critical of this. <laughs> um, so. And maybe yeah. that's related to, you know, a maneuver many of us, you know, have to use when we're talking about Palestine and right. rights for, um, Palestinians, you know, that, that there are Jewish voices for peace, yeah. you know, and that to express that, um, the sense of urgency mm -hmm. around human rights and civil rights for, for the Palestinian people is, is not an, an you know, an anti-Jewish sentiment. Right. It's an anti-Zionist yeah. 
sentiment and yeah. and there's a world of difference there yeah that's also a humanist sentiment too like you know <laughs> yeah would you talk a little bit about your relationship with kathy acker and just how you sort of met her and what her work meant to you <laughs> i mean she's such a huge force in literature yeah um when i was working at city lights and the shop in the mid 80s uh one of my my roles was to um, organize the events. Mm-hmm. And so when authors were coming through yeah. on their book I tours. I want to meet this person. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So yeah. I would set up events for people I wanted yeah. to meet. And um, when Kathy was coming through on her book tour, I think it was for um, Don Quixote, mm-hmm. um, her Grove Press book, she came to the store and I was a huge fan yeah. and had read everything and had gone around to all the little you know, rare book shops at that time and had collected all of her little early works. They weren't called zines then, chapbooks mm-hmm. they were yeah, called. Right. And um, was delighted to meet Kathy and she had a great crowd and we hit it off mm-hmm. and I invited her out after the event mm-hmm. and we went out for dinner and then I took her to... Amelia's, which was a great lesbian bar in mm-hmm. San Francisco, yeah. which doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> and um, and we had a fabulous time, and it um, was the beginning of a really great friendship. Yeah. And I, she was living in London at the time, and I visited and um, started working on um, selecting, doing a selected essay book that mm-hmm. ended up um, at Serpent's Tale called... Bodies of Work. Thank you, David. I'm impressed. (laughs) Um, And um, uh, and really um, was saddened when she got sick, Mm -hmm. of course, and um, and saw her through to the end of her life, and Mm -hmm. she died in a um, hospital in Tijuana. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I know you've done a lot of lot with her work um, since then, just to keep kind of generating interest in her work and new critical thought about her work um, with Lust for Life, which is writing by others about her work. Um, And I think you and Matthias Feigner and I mean, there's probably a whole host of people who are, you know, Marvin Taylor, all these people are really perpetuating her work. We're trying, you know, we're trying. It's very important to me. to do what I can to promote Kathy's legacy. Um, uh, it's hard enough to be a, a literary author and um, feminist and mm-hmm. um, to, uh, you know, have your work be read and keep it in print. But yeah. when you die young, it's even harder. Yeah. Um, Matthias Wigner is the executor of Kathy's estate, right. and I've worked closely with him on mm-hmm. a number of projects. And one was a conference at NYU, I think, on the fifth anniversary of her mm-hmm. death. And um, that was the beginning of my like bringing different generations together mm-hmm. to kind of consider and reconsider Kathy's influence mm-hmm. on so many different. Um, readers and writers so from people like i remember eve sedgwick the great Mm -hmm. scholar from uh, who was at cuny um reading from kathy's work at Mm -hmm. a reading um that at an event we did um alongside kim gordon Mm -hmm. and um richard foreman yeah um and then including younger writers um and I remember, you know, an audience that included Douglas Martin and yeah. um, talking later with Kate Zambrino and, you know, a, a new generation um, of writers who who grew up reading Kathy's work. And I think, you know, I was very pleased at the kind of acknowledgement of um, of her output. Yeah. Yeah. Wasn't it Kathleen Hanna who said that Kathy just told her, told her, you know, stop doing spoken words, start a rock band. Exactly. <laughs> she started Bikini Kill, yeah. Exactly right. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, her influences. I think even, um, I think even Neil Gaiman said something like, uh, 
uh, oh, he was asked, you know, if you could have three keepsakes from the 80s that you could take with you to outer space. He said Kathy Acker was one of them. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's so interesting. Like, yeah. if you, you know, <clears throat> what to Sapphire, Rick Moody, Neil Gaiman, Kathleen Hanna, and Karen Finley all have in common. Yeah. And it's like their um, reverence for Kathy Acker. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> wow. Um, and I, I was looking on the clock tower, you know, I think I, I either search your name or Kathy's name, and I noticed there's a program from 2006 um, from Lust for Life, which was that collection of essays about Kathy that was at the cake shop. So hopefully when we air this interview, we'll, we'll rebroadcast that. Oh, that's nice. Um, and there was an interesting, you know, one of the speakers uh, named Philip, does this he reads from one of Kathy's work I think maybe it's mother demonology but I don't remember exactly but it's this piece where she basically says that Prince should be president so <laughs> it's really it's you know now of course to hear that um, it's really oh, interesting. it makes me cry yeah, yeah. it's so, and I think it's around minute like 35 or something of that program so it's just an, you know among all the other um, great people speaking well, what about the new film, the, the, the new program you're working on or you're producing? So I, uh, when I left the Feminist Press um, in 2014, I decided to take a little break from mm -hmm. book publishing to get off the, the treadmill yeah. of life for a little while and yeah. really think about what I want to do next, yeah. um, having published books for a long time and um, really think about my next move. Uh -huh. Um, and in the course of that time, I was having dinner with a filmmaker, Sam Fader, whose work I know because um, Sam made a documentary film about Kate Bornstein, mm -hmm. who was one of my high-risk authors mm -hmm. and dear friend of mine. And Sam was talking with me about... Um, embarking on a new documentary film, which is has a tentative title of Disclosure, uh, trans, um, the story of trans lives on screen. Hmm. And, it's, um, and it's going to be a history of trans images in Hollywood and TV. Hmm. Um, for anyone familiar with the documentary um, Celluloid Closet, which came out in the 90s, um, and was based on this um, well-researched book by Vito Russo, and it was about kind of like all the ways in which homosexuality had been coded in Hollywood films mm -hmm. um, since the beginning of film. Mm. Um, and so Sam was talking with me, um, a, you know, a conversation I think many of us are having is... is um, uh, many of us who are interested in gender and sexuality um, and the LGBT community. And um, here we are at this so-called tipping point, mm -hmm. as Time Magazine called it when they put Lorraine Co Laverne Cox on the cover, uh -huh. um, where um, kind of post-gay marriage, we're now in a world where there's a lot of attention brought, a lot of visibility for trans people. Right, the whole and North Carolina thing just this past Well, <laughs> yeah, I think what, you know, so I, before, like, the so-called bathroom bills, uh -huh. um, uh, and things happen so quickly now, but I really do think there's an important timeline here. Um, there was kind of this buildup of, of Janet Mock coming out as, you know, she had been a successful magazine editor, had passed. Mm -hmm. um, no one knew she was trans, and she realized success didn't really mean anything to her if she mm. wasn't bringing up people with her. So she came out as trans. Laverne Cox was cast on trans on um, Orange is the New Black mm -hmm. in a recurring role. Um, Transparent was developed as a Amazon TV show mm. um, that's now won Golden Globes and very successful. And, and as we all know, a previous gold Olympian right. has come out um, yeah, yeah. and been on the cover of Vanity right, Fair right. and has her own reality show. Yeah. And and people around the country are seeing these images of trans people on screen yeah. um, uh, in a way that's never happened before. Yeah. Um, 
And what does that visibility mean? Mm -hmm. What does it mean if you're trans? Mm -hmm. um, who's represented, who isn't? Um, and within a very short time um, of this kind of new visibility, um, which is, you know, it's not pervasive, mm -hmm. but it's something to talk about. Yeah. Um, we're seeing this backlash. We're seeing bathroom bills, and we're seeing um, a high rate of um, uh, assault mm -hmm. um, against trans people, and 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 visibility um, of marginalized communities. I think almost always has this kind of backlash. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's a very interesting cultural moment. It has urgency around it because of the violence, mm -hmm. um, and because of the the. Uh, um, incursions now against uh, against civil and human rights mm -hmm. for trans people across the country. Um, you know, when I mean, in these bathroom bills. Yeah. Um, Justin Vivian Bond said in the Kiki and Herb show that right now has um, been revived at Joe's Pub. Uh -huh. What did Kiki say? She said, until... We can all use public restrooms. No one should use public yeah. restrooms. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we really should all be peeing outside yeah. until we can all pee comfortably inside. Um, so, you know, it's urgent. We don't yeah. want that to happen. Um, anyway, Sam was talking about this documentary film project to to really create a history of, well, what, what is the history of trans, of images of trans people in on in Hollywood and on on TV mm -hmm. that people have grown up with and and all and and of the trans um, makers people who are making their own trans people who are making their own media mm -hmm. film television web series new platforms um, what did they grow up looking at and what are they going to make now mm -hmm. and how might those images look different yeah um, if they're if they're making, if a wide range of trans people are making them. And the prospect of this really fascinated me. Um, and I decided to, um, to become part of this project and use my skills as a publisher to now become a producer mm -hmm. and um, produce this, um, this, this feature with Sam and, and make it, um, with you know, with wide an audience as possible mm -hmm. in mind, but really to focus on what trans people have to say about um, what these images have meant and and what kind of images they want to make next. Mm -hmm. And historically, how like how far back did you find images in film or? So we're doing and this research now, and and you know what what is. Um, I say, it shouldn't be surprising, but it, you know these things always do surprise me. Is that mm. there there is no history, so there's no there are no books yet. Mm -hmm. There's no shortcut to um, putting together um, these images to choose from, mm -hmm. um, and so we decided to really prioritize the experience of trans people. So we're conducting research interviews. Mm -hmm. We're going to talk to over a hundred people. We've done about half that research now and use that as our primary source material. And from those research interviews, we will, one, create a documentary film, and, and two, hopefully also create and preserve an oral history. Mm -hmm. And in, in some of those interviews, I guess the people you're interviewing probably remember certain things and films that they saw, and there's like, I remember seeing this when I was young. And, I mean, we'll yeah. all remember those things. Yeah. It's really interesting yeah. that... Um, you know, in the tropes that come up over and over and over again, the you know the homicidal crossdresser from yeah. Psycho right, and right. Silence of the Lambs right. and um, Dressed to Kill. Yeah. You know, and then the kind of sad man in a dress. Mm -hmm. You know, the sort of like you know, or you know, the kind of like victim. Yeah. From you know, I mean, the current examples would be you know, Maura Feverman on Transparent mm -hmm. or. Um, you know, the Danish girl, um, uh, um, and then our title disclosure comes from, you know, the most common trope is really mm -hmm. this, this moment, like the crying game moment, mm -hmm. 
the Neil Jordan film, Mm -hmm. which is centered around a man falling in love with a trans woman Mm -hmm. and not realizing that she's that she's trans. And then the big kind of arc of that film is when she, um, the trans woman, drops her robe and Mm -hmm. and the the character realizes that she's trans and and a sort of like disclosure moment, which is used, you know, also in like you know, years and years of Jerry Springer and daytime talk right. shows, the exploitation of trans women who, you know, reveal their, mm-hmm. you know, their, um, their trans to, you know, a potential love interest and then is, you know, clobbered on, on film. Mm-hmm. You know, that that's kind of the, the short history. Yeah. Um, and, you know, not a lot of trans guys, you know, the big story, you know, is, you know, the the most recurring um, reference is maybe boys don't cry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and the reason, you know, why trans women and trans, you know, guys have such a different history. Right. You know, what, what the, you know, who captures the imagination yeah. is very yeah. interesting. So it really involves all the kind of political thinking I've been doing for a long time. And um, and I'm excited to to make this make this happen. Yeah, yeah. It seems as you're talking about this, it seems like in theater, you know, anything from Shakespeare to no theater in Japan, there was always <clears throat> it was always men playing the roles of everyone, all the women. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you know that kind of reveal was probably the punchline in a lot of those old performances. Um, I don't know if that would fits in there somehow, but that seems like a distant um, history to it. Um, but yeah, it seems like your experience with publishing um, and publishing things at the time they need to be sort of out there <laughs> seems, you know, perfectly consistent with that sort of film project. Yeah, um, thank you. Yeah, yeah I'm excited yeah, about it. Yeah. I don't know. Is there anything? Are you? Is there anything else on the the horizon? Or well, I can't stop publishing books, of <laughs> yeah, course. So I, um, <laughs> Johanna Fateman, the great uh, uh, former Le Tigre member and mm-hmm. um, writer, art critic Johanna Fateman, and I, after she wrote her icon essay mm-hmm. on Andrea Dworkin, we both. Really became obsessed with Dworkin, yeah. <laughs> another like hated feminist, right. um, someone who had really potent radical ideas about gender and gender violence and misogyny and the mm. kind of epic nature of mm. misogyny, um, and and, a, and an amazing writer, yeah. razor sharp writer who um, got on the wrong side of the sex wars, um, unfortunately wrote and. Um, became very involved in the anti-porn movement, and, mm-hmm. um, which was very fractious for the feminist movement and, you know, is not a point of view that I share. Um, but what happens often with radical feminists who have complicated views and complicated lives and, um, and, and radical opinions mm-hmm. and won't shut up about them, yeah. <laughs> no matter what you think about them, <laughs> she was maligned um, and dismissed. And nobody reads Dworkin now, yeah. despite the fact that she has written woman-hating and right-wing women. And um, Mercy is a novel that's like a Faulkner novel. Uh-huh. It's incredible. And uh-huh. so Johanna and I became very interested in um, using some of these um, Dworkin texts as a way to kind of continue interesting public conversations about feminism um, so we are together editing uh, a short anthology of a selection of Dworkin writings mm-hmm. that will be published um, in maybe 18 months or, yeah. or so by Semiotext. Oh, yeah. So I'm very happy to have it in the context of uh, a publisher of radical mm-hmm. ideas like Semiotext yeah. um, and for Dworkin to be considered in... Um, I think in that context will be very good for us as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Even in, in with semi-text, uh, like in Chris Krause's book, um, I Love Dick. There's a point where she mentions, "Oh, we should give this to Ira and Amy." <laughs> 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 so it's you know, so 
It's a small world. There's definitely yeah, it's getting smaller all the time. But it was that kind of uh-huh. excitement of that time of high risk and all that too, where she was like, "Oh, here's you know, we have two venues where that high risk and semiotex." <laughs> so yeah, interesting. Unless there's anything else that you'd like to um, say coming up. Or well, I just want to thank you, David, for having me come and talk with you about the years of work that. Um, that meant a lot to me and that, you know, you publish books and you know this as a writer, you never know exactly who's reading and right. <laughs> what kind of impact it has and where it lands and yeah. what the longevity is. So it's very gratifying to me to have this conversation with you and be face to face. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Well, thank you for coming and sharing so much about it. <laughs> All right. This is David Colosi on Clock Tower Radio, clocktower.org, and I've been speaking with Amy Shoulder.